This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let me throw out some numbers for you. More than 82,400 coronavirus cases they have been reported, with more new cases being reported outside China than within the country for the first time, highlighting the spread of the epidemic. Now, the first U.S. case of the virus was confirmed in Washington State at Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett. That hospital is part of the $25 billion Providence St. Joseph Health System, which includes 51 hospitals, more than 800 clinics, and 115,000 caregivers. Dr. Amy Compton Phillips is Chief Clinical Officer and Executive Vice President at Providence St. Joseph Health, Health, and she joins us on the phone from Everett, Washington. Um, Dr. Compton Phillips, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. So how do you now prepare for maybe what's expected in the U.S., and what are your expectations for the virus spread here in the United States? Uh, thanks so much for asking. And our expectation out here is that um, this virus is now circulating in the community and we need to be prepared for for an influx of patients with symptoms. Um, and so that includes making sure that, that um, all of those access points in the community, so doctor's offices, we have express care clinics and Walgreens, we have urgent cares, all of those need to be prepared for people with symptoms. Um, so we're really revving up our capacity, not only to, to take care of patients when they come in, but also our online capabilities, um, helping people have access to care through phone and through um, uh, video visits so that they can get care from home and minimize the risk of transmitting the virus further. Um, and then in our acute care hospitals, we're making sure we're prepared not only to keep patients isolated as we need to with any person with infections with, uh, that can be transmitted through respiratory droplets, um, but also who may need more intensive care, so with respirators and ventilators and, and more acute services. So it really is an all-out attempt to make sure that we're ready and able to care for patients should this get significantly right. out of control. So, Dr. Compton Phillips, obviously there's a whole lot of information and a lot of misinformation out there. Help us understand, just as sort of human beings in the world, what should we be doing? What are you advising uh, folks to do to to minimize it, but but also to sort of deal with this as this potentially spreads? Sure. Well, I, you know, I think the key thing is right now, don't panic. Yeah. <laughs> one, one case does not mean, you know, we have an epidemic here in the U.S. Um, it is like a very bad flu bug and people we've been dealing with the flu and nobody's afraid of the flu. Right. right? Um, so, so is this much to, worse than the flu? This. I think that's what we're trying to understand a little bit. It, it is a more severe version. Um, so it, it causes very similar symptoms. It causes fever, headache, uh, cough, shortness of breath. Um, it's just so far in the statistics out of China, which we'll see if they play out here in the States, um, that of, of the people who get this infection, about 20% get a severe case. Um, so it goes from, from the average flu symptoms to, to having a cough so severe and shortness of breath so severe, you actually need supplemental oxygen. Um, and in 2.5%, around somewhere between 2 and 3% of cases, it gets so severe it causes death. 
Mm. Um, so one in five patients getting this infection in China needed needed much more acute treatment. And that's significantly worse than the flu statistics in most years. Um, so it is like a very, very virulent flu. One of the challenges is that, um, you know, most of us don't have antibodies to this version of coronavirus. And so being a novel infection, mm-hmm. there's not any kind of what we would call herd immunity around where people are, are more resistant to this germ. And so you, know, you described a little bit of what you guys are doing at, at your facilities. Um, you know, what should people expect if they go into a doctor's office or a hospital in terms of how they may be quarantined or how they may be treated? Yeah, what we have been doing up until yesterday um, is asking about travel history. And, and if you if you have been traveling, we put a mask on you and make sure you're isolated. If you're traveling and have symptoms, we would also um, uh, put you in a in specific kind of isolation rooms, including negative pressure rooms, so that we could do a test safely and send that test off to the CDC um, or, or to the State Departments, depending on where we are, if the State Department has capacity. Um, so that we could actually do this new test for uh, for COVID nineteen. Um, that said, now that now that we have at least one confirmed case in the U S., um, we're working with the CDC and with our departments of health in each state to say how broadly do we need to be testing patients here on the West Coast, which tends to be um, ground zero for infections that are coming over from the Pacific Rim. I mean, have we learned something from treating that first uh, patient that you guys, um, that, that actually was in your hospital system? We, we have. Um, we've learned uh, a couple things. One is that in, in our, our first patient, and now we've treated several patients, actually, mm-hmm. but in our first patient, um, he actually did quite well for several days and then took a turn for the worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we know that we can't, just, we can't just write it off and say you're going to be fine. We actually are, are being a little more cautious and watching people so we know what the natural history of this new disease looks like. Um, And the second thing is that um, we were, again, in conjunction with the CDC and and, um, several several of our national and international experts, um, we were able to get him access to an experimental drug, um, which made a big difference in his care. All right. Listen, we really enjoyed um, talking to you and getting um, your firsthand experience with all of this. So much appreciated. And uh, I know our viewers and listeners uh, appreciate it as well. Dr. Amy Compton Phillips, Chief Clinical Officer and Executive Vice President at Providence St. Joseph Health, uh, Health on the phone from Everett, Washington. All right. So. To me, this is one of the stories of our time in many ways, the expansion of access to different kinds of investments. We talk so much about it. We talk about the private markets, the public markets, and it's really an important question as we think about our own retirement, as we think about institutional versus uh, retail And our search for yield in a low-yield environment. Absolutely. So right at the heart of it uh, is in this discussion, uh, as often is, is Nira Kesar, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Nira, great to have you back with us. Thanks for having me, Jason. All right. So give us the, the setup here. I love the headline, Mom and Pop Should Be Free to Skip Private Equity, which is sort of a provocative statement in the sense that private equity really wants these guys. And there's also been this sense that retail investors want to get a piece of this, you have a little bit of a different take. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a, uh, there's a movement now to try to democratize private equity 
Um, you know, I make an observation in the column, which is that, you know, if you if you say to people markets should be available to everyone, you know, everyone should have equal access to markets, that would be a pretty, you know, banal statement right. in most respects. But when it comes to investing, it's hugely controversial because we have this idea that we need to put gates around certain investments to protect ordinary investors from themselves because they're presumably not sophisticated enough to uh, to have access to certain corners of the market. That includes private equity, that includes hedge funds and other, and other places. Uh, the problem is that these gates eventually come down. They don't last forever. And we're talking now about giving uh, access to ordinary investors to private equity, which I support. But inevitably what happens is these gates come down too long. It, it, it takes too long for these gates to come down and they come down after everyone else has feasted. Right. And uh, in this case, you know, private equity has been hugely successful for the last three decades. Valuations are very high. And, and I worry that ordinary investors are going to be in, uh, invited to the party just in time to get hurt. Well, that's what I love. You know, you know how we kind of look for peaks in the market and signs? And I feel like like when Sam Zell sold his REIT, yeah. you know, just ahead of the financial crisis and mortgage meltdown, we're like, oh, all right, that was a peak. I, I do wonder if we talk about so much money that has been, um, you know, gathered by the private equity firms, we talk about all the dry powder that they have. And I do wonder if it's you know, a sign also, along with the reaching out to more regular investors, that maybe it's a sign of the PE top. I think it is, Carol. I, I mean, there's, there's two different ways I think you can look at that. One is just objectively at the numbers. I mean, you look at the valuations PE, they're twice what they were 20 years ago. Um, and also, obviously, PE relies heavily on leverage. Mm-hmm. And for the last three decades, you've had this secular trend of interest rates going from you know, very, very high levels in the, in the uh, mid to late 1980s to what they are now, which is on the floor. And when you take away those headwinds, it's just difficult to see how private equity is going to be able to put up the numbers that it has in the past. And when you look at projections for private equity going forward, I mean, there are some, some people who think that returns are going to be even lower than what you're going to get from the S&P, which itself is not particularly cheap. Uh, but there's also, to your point, Carol, there's also this mechanism, this, this feeling that you know the smart money knows what it's doing and and uh, and when it when it owns rich assets you know maybe the thing to do is to is to uh, is to dump it on uh, unsuspecting ordinary investors right. and so there's a feeling that that's happening too right well it's interesting to and near i think you point out point this out in your column as well that not all private equity is created equal too and and sort of riffing on your lead with your your Groucho Marx quote about I don't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member you know part of it is which private equity funds you could get into because the really exclusive ones maybe they don't want to make room you know for uh, other investors because they've got all the money that they need so it, not everyone's created equal here right that's right. And, and I think that's where you really have to distinguish uh, because, you know, in, in private equity and uh, particularly in venture, there's a big difference in the distribution of returns. Yes. Um, if you look at uh, if you look at, for example, what the, the returns of the the uh, the most successful private equity uh, investors get, it's it's uh, it's orders of magnitude greater than what the than what sort of like the average private equity returns are. And so there is also there's a, there is also the feeling that as private equity proliferates, as funds yeah. proliferate, that to the extent that they're going to be um, available to ordinary investors, the ordinary, the ordinary investors are not going to get the top of the line yeah. uh, access. Exactly. That's, that's a further problem. Yeah. All right. We're going to leave it there. Always good to catch up with you. Love your columns. Nir Kisar, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, founder of Unison Advisors.
Yeah, and that's exactly what uh, abortion clinics are facing. They're getting nickel and dimed out of business. Uh, this is a fascinating story. It's my must-read in Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Rebecca Greenfield is in charge of the diversity coverage here at Bloomberg News. This story reported by her and Cynthia Coons. Rebecca is here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, as I said, it is my must-read. What's going on here? Thanks for having me. You bet. Um, yeah, so we looked into the business of being an abortion provider in 2020. Um, as you know, you know, with Donald Trump in the White House and a more conservative court, er, the climate on abortion is definitely changing. We wanted to see what does that mean for clinics and, and what is their business like? And so our story really digs into really how hard it is to run a clinic these days and not just because of the laws or the political climate, but because of the business climate. We'll talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah, so there are restrictive laws, and those laws oftentimes do make it costlier for clinics to operate. But then there's the general culture of fear and stigma that makes other business owners not really want to work with the business of abortion providers. And, and let me just jump in for a sec, because you do talk about one individual in particular, Amy Hagstrom Miller, um, who is, I think in, in your words, de facto legal guardian of the pro-choice movement. But she has talked about this abortion tax, right? And this ta- gets into some of the additional costs on running a clinic. Yeah, I, I love that phrase that she, she took. But yeah, for to her, so the abortion tax, the way she describes it and what we found is kind of a litany of surcharges or increased costs or general nuisances that make it more expensive to operate just because you're in the business of abortion or just because you're an abortion provider. So that can be anything from as little as your local plumber doesn't want to come work with you because he's scared of being targeted by protesters or because he doesn't want to work with an abortion provider. But we also found some bigger examples of this. So we found um, insurance companies dropping abortion clinics or not renewing their policies um, from their business and compliance insurance um, because they, I mean, potentially because they were fearing greater risks that these clinics Mm -hmm. might face in the giving climate that we're in now. And also banks declining loans. I mean, that's a huge deal. Banks declining loans for people who want to open up clinics. It's really hard for these clinics. And it's kind of all wrapped up together. You know, you can't just say, oh, the bank is saying, I don't want to be in the business of abortion. The bank might be saying that. They might be saying that they're they don't want to get into the business for business reasons because it is all tied up in this stigma. Right, right. Well, because often these are essentially, even in this globalized world, community bankers. You know, they're thinking about their other clients and, and things like that. And as you say, uh, sort of the, sort of that spreading around. You and Cynthia Coons worked on this. It feels of a piece with a lot of the work she's done and, and, and you've done. Put it in, into the context of sort of everything else that we're seeing in a in a changing world, it feels like, especially around both women's health and reproductive health in in many ways. Yeah, like I said, we definitely came at this through a 2020 lens. You know, people have written about abortion before, we've written about women's health before, but we really feel like we're in a moment right now um, where the legislator looks different, where the courts look different, where things might actually change. And um, there's actually like a long history of these tactics and that kind of is building to this Mm -hmm. moment now. So that's really where we thought this piece fit in. I wondered, because, you know, we talked earlier this week about a couple of stories. Of course, this story that's in the magazine, but, you know, putting together 
together getting your head around, okay, here we are how many decades since Roe v. Wade, right? And you would think that running a clinic would be an easier business to do or you know, easier process. It's not. And yet, at the beginning of the week, we had Harvey Weinstein, Good. I'm right? I'm glad you went there, yeah. Uh, and so the charges against him, the verdict, um, and also doing some time. And, you know, that whole Me Too movement, we have actually in the last couple of years made some progress on that. So it's kind of, you know, kind of these mixed blessings, progress on that. And yet when you look at what's going on with abortion clinics, we're sliding backward. Yeah, it's it's a really dissonant right? week for this. So next week, the Supreme Court is hearing um, arguments in an abortion case that's really similar to an abortion case that they heard four years ago. And it's really, I mean, it's potentially they could decide in the favor against the abortion clinics. Yeah. And yeah, that would be a huge backslide. Basically four years ago, they had this big victory and then it would be a backslide. Um, and then you put that against, yeah, the whole me too movement. And that's kind of a grassroots movement. It's very pressuring companies. Um, we saw some movement in the criminal justice system with Harvey Weinstein on Monday, but I think, yeah, it's just this disconnect between basically like the laws and the court system mm-hmm. and what, I think grassroots movements are happening now. Well, and public opinion obviously plays into this yes. as well, was so powerful when it came to the Me Too movement and the velocity at which that happened, obviously with Weinstein specifically, and all the sort of powerful people who ultimately came forward there, but then the way that it that it really went viral in a lot of ways. And yet, as you say, on the other side, in, in many cases, that has empowered uh, this other side going the other way. Yeah, and we mentioned this this one statistic in the story where it's seven out of 10 people, according to a really recent survey, right. don't want to overturn Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Right. Um, so that is the public opinion here. Of course, there's so much nuance in the abortion debate that does that statistic doesn't get at, but I still think a lot of people would say they want most abortion to be legal in many cases. You also though talk about the role of social media and all of this, and right. that has provided me- a lot of momentum for the anti-abortionists. Yeah, I don't know if you guys do. You remember we talk about this moment, but in 2015, when those videos came out uh, that sh- purportedly showed Planned Parenthood selling, um, doing illegally selling fetal body yes. parts, and then it turned out to be a false claim and edited videos. And that moment, I remember being such a huge deal. It also feels like it was much longer ago than 2015 mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. But in our story, we we found how impactful that was in the movement. It wasn't just a way to get people to kind of rally against or behind or for Planned Parenthood, but it also motivated these anti-abortion activists to target medical waste companies because they were saying, oh, yeah, these medical waste companies do work with abortion providers, and if we can get them to stop working with abortion providers, it will be really hard for those providers to do business. All right. Well, it's a really powerful story. Uh, Carol's must read uh, and further conversation with Rebecca Greenfield on our weekend show uh, this weekend. Catch that starting Friday night, both an analysis of this story and a little more conversation about the impact of the Weinstein verdict. Uh, Another story that Rebecca and her team have been following very closely. She oversees all of our managing diversity coverage here at Bloomberg News. Our thanks to Rebecca Greenfield. All right, so amid all the talk of markets, companies continue to roll along, make decisions, people continue to come and go, and on the 
going side, a couple of people uh, leaving some key roles over at Apple. And when we think about Apple and wanting to know exactly what's going on there and what it means, there's only one guy for us. That's Mark Gurman. He joins us from our Los Angeles Bureau. I was delighted to uh, catch up with him briefly earlier in the week. Uh, So, Mark, tell us what's going on uh, over at Apple. We're talking ops and supply chain here. Yeah, hi Jason. Good to see you too. Yes, so two longtime operations VPs, which is basically the highest level you can be in the Apple, you know, in the Apple ranks, other than a senior VP or the CEO, CEO, etc., have left the company. One person named Nick Ferlenza uh, has retired. The other, Dugo Pazmuj, is planning to leave uh, later this year in discussions about his exit. And they've both been very key to the manufacturing and supply chain, like you said, around nearly every major Apple product that you can think of. So how serious is this? Like, what does it mean? How do I read this as an investor? Yeah, this isn't the end of the world. This is, like Jason said, it's the the comings and goings of of any corporation. People come, people go. But these were, you know, the two notable names internally who who supervised, you know, hundreds of people and oversaw lots of manufacturing. So it is, you know, significant from from that standpoint. But does this change anything long term for the company? Does this have anything to do with the coronavirus or the trade war? Uh, That's a no. Well, and Mark, you point out in your story, which I think is really important for for folks to remember and understand that operations has been the core of Tim Cook's Apple, right? I mean, this is what has really helped this company extend its lead over its rivals to expand. This is the cornerstone of the strategy. So when people leave in this business, maybe, you know, back in the day in the Steve Jobs Apple, you know, people have been like, ah, it's an ops guy, you know, don't worry as much about it. But this this is the core of the strategy here. Yeah, Apple at its core is operated or run by operations people, I should say. Uh, Three of their most senior people on, on that senior executive team come from operations backgrounds. Like you said, Tim Cook is an operations guy. His number two, Jeff Williams, is an operations guy. They added a new operations person to the executive team that sort of replaced Johnny Ive on that executive leadership team, uh, Sabi Khan. So this is an operations-driven company, and it's you know for a long time the company's division for ops hasn't really seen much shifting at that top level. But now you're seeing two people, you know, coming and going in a, in a very short period of time. So, Mark, got to ask you from a supply chain perspective, obviously, lots of people have been talking about Apple through the lens of the coronavirus and the impact there. They've made some changes. We've talked to you about it uh, over the last year or so, especially in light of the trade war. Help us understand the impact on supply chain and operations that the coronavirus is having now. So I think the impact is really going to be in the month of March and potentially in April. What you're going to start seeing is Apple running out of iPhones at a lot of retail stores in the United States, Europe, etc. So the impact is going to be there. But obviously, people are now coming back to work. Things are starting to ramp up. And there's about a four to six week lead time, right? So you're going to see some impact for the next two months. But I think after those two months, things are going to start being uh, start are going to start to clear up and things should be fine. Uh, but, you know, there is some concern about the next iPhones. There is concern about some of the engineering work because these things are developed hand in hand between Cupertino and China not being able to be done. Um, but not not to be too optimistic, but I honestly, I don't anticipate any big, you know, shifts away from that iPhone normal September launch timeframe because of this at this point. So it's not going to, okay, so it's not going to mess anything up ultimately longer term here. I, I really don't think so. Uh, 
what we're seeing now are some conferences being canceled. So mm -hmm. if Apple was going to hold some sort of, you know, product launch event in March, I would anticipate that would be sort of maybe like a press release situation instead, or maybe at a smaller, sort of a smaller gathering. Uh, other than that, I, I really don't see a long-term impact. All right. Just want to bring you a red headline crossing the Bloomberg right now. It has to do with some of the key Canadian exchanges, uh, TMX exchanges, including the TSX, the Toronto Stock Exchange, uh, have been halted. Trading there have been halted uh, due to some technical issues. Uh, that redhead crossing the Bloomberg uh, just a few minutes ago. So we'll bring you more as that develops. But, you know, obviously an important uh, market. Yeah, an important uh, series of indexes. So it was a technical halt, and now it's going to be closed for the rest of the day. That's right. Yeah. So we're, we're talking seeing. about the TS, TSX, TX, mm -hmm. TSXV, excuse me, and TSX Alpha exchanges. Uh, technical halt was declared, and TMX now saying that the technical halt to remain for the rest of the day on the TSX, the Toronto Stock Exchange. So more on that as it develops. Uh, our thanks to Mark Gurman out in Los Angeles, tech reporter, uh, bringing us the latest and greatest on Apple. As we said, some comings and goings as it relates to some top executives there uh, and a nice update from Mark as well on the supply chain. Because if you think to last week, I right. think, was it last week? You know, Apple was really, you know, among the first to come out and say, here's how this is going to affect it being the coronavirus our operations, you know, sort of shutting some things down. And they talked about lower sales, obviously, lower sales. in China, right? Because exactly their right. retail outlets were closed. So it, it totally makes sense. But I do wonder, be coming off of U.S.-China trade war, right. coming off of the virus, I really do think there is a major rethink potentially going on when it comes to supply chains around the world. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time for the drive to the close on a Thursday, a pretty ugly Thursday here on the markets. Norm Conley back with us, CEO and CIO of JAG Capital Management, looking after about $1.5 billion for clients, joins us on the phone from St. Louis. Norm, great to have you back with Carol and myself. Oh, thank you. So glad to be here. All right. So what do you make of a week like this? I know we're going to talk about some big caps and some names that you're following, but how do you assess this? What are you hearing uh, from your clients as they you know, look at so much red over the course of this week? Yeah, I think it is, it is nerve wracking. This, is, uh, this has been, you know, uh, in terms of depth of decline compared to, you know, historical corrections, I and mean, we're not that deep, at least not, uh, at least not yet. But uh, over this short of a period of time, it's it's you know getting to be somewhat unusual. I mean, we're you know after all, I think we were at uh, 52 week highs on the uh, uh, and really all time highs in the S and P 500 about a week ago, right? So uh, in just a few trading sessions, we've um, you know we've fallen quite a bit as the as the fear levels have risen. Um, in terms of you know uh, you know what I'm telling folks, uh, you know we got to kind of I think uh, you know find a balance between 
you know, um, uh, on the one hand, not being complacent about the virus risk, but on the other hand, uh, not not uh, not going too far in the other direction uh, in terms of you know fear. Uh, so it's a, it's an interesting time. If it wasn't uh, such an unpleasant uh, uh, you know uh, backdrop, it would be you know fascinating. So how do you make sense of a norm uh, an environment though like this? I do wonder is it similar to some of the steep sell-offs and then bounce backs that we've seen? I feel like several times over the last few years, especially when the market got a little pricey or got a little elevated. Um, you know, is it similar to that? Is there something different about this one? I mean. I think many people, safe to say, considering the run-up that we've had in the past year, you know, was looking for, were, were looking, excuse me, for some kind of correction to bring valuations more in line with what made sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, this uh, while it's unusual, it's, it's certainly not, um, not unique. I mean, you know, just to give one example, we had a, uh, back in, in, in the uh, late 2000, late summer of 2015, uh, the S&P had about a 10% downdraft in, in four days. Now, if today ends like it is, uh, like it looks like it's going to, uh, this will be at about an 11, 11.5% uh, drawdown in five days. Um, so, you know, again, it's somewhat unusual, but, but not unique. Um, and, and, and here's the tricky thing. In the past, as you, as you kind of allude to, um, these short, sharp, relatively deep, pullbacks, unless they occur during, you know, an ongoing bear market, you know, for example, 08 or early 09 or uh, 2000, 2001, 2002. So with those exceptions, unless it's already, unless we're already in a bull market, the tendency over the next, you know, uh, six months, 12 months uh, has tended to be positive. The returns have tended to be positive and actually more positive than all other periods of roughly six or 12 months. And so talk to us about some names that you're watching amid all of this, Norm. Yeah, so um, you know, we've owned Mac Microsoft as one of our largest holdings now yeah. for, for several years. Uh, Microsoft's selling off. Um, still, you know, still not a classically cheap stock, but in terms of uh, being an extremely well-run company that, uh, although they may experience it, you know, and, and they've told us they're going to experience a bit of a slowdown near term in their Windows business because of uh, what's happening in China. Um, you know, people are still going to use Microsoft uh, software and solutions and cloud solutions and Microsoft Office uh, in the coming years. So I think you know that one looks interesting on, on further weakness. Um, another one that that we've owned for a while and and really like it as kind of a uh, a thought leader in retail uh, is Lululemon, which, uh, mm. as I'm talking to you now, um, you know, is off about seven percent today. And, and, and you know, my my educated guess is it's related to their China exposure because that is a um, you know a material part of Lulu's um, you know, growth strategy. Yeah, that's been a huge business. effort over the past few years. Uh, we wrote a story about that in the magazine uh, late last year, and that was a uh, a, a really uh, big push, especially when uh, their private equity owner, their former private equity owner, Advent, came back in, right? Right, right. Yeah, so, so you know, we like the management. We like their strategy. Um, you know, we like their strategy with menswear. Uh, yeah. So to a certain extent, and I don't know this to be the case, but, you know, as I look at my screen with several hundred tickers on it, you, know, you can see that the, those with uh, Chinese exposure, either actual or perceived, uh, you know, getting getting uh, getting hit a bit, 
uh, maybe more than than most of the other uh, types of names. So, um, so I think, you know, I, it, you know, it's, I'm not pounding the table. Like I say, we have to draw, you know, a healthy balance between respecting what's going on and 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 uh, not being complacent. What? Well, I, and I, forgive me if I can just break in, because we are seeing sure. stocks take another leg down. We are definitely at our lows of the session. We are now down officially uh, a correction, 10% on the week for the Dow, uh, the NASDAQ, and the S&P 500, 1,000 points 1,021 points, 1,028 points lower on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So we're down almost 3.9%, down almost 3.9% as well on the S&P 500. We are below 3,000 on the S&P 500. And the NASDAQ now looking at a decline of more than 4%, down 368 wow. points. So, you know, this is key too. Here we've got roughly less than five minutes left uh, to the closing bell, and we're selling into the close. So, Norm, I mean, that's not a sign you want to see. You want to see a little bit of a bounce back. Yeah, we saw that a little bit earlier today, and my good uh, my good friends, a longtime subscriber of, of Bespoke Investments, and they just they just tweeted that uh, the S and P 500 has only declined 10% in a week, uh, four other times since the end of World War II, um, April 2000, September 2001, October 2008, and guess what? October 1987. Yeah. Uh, so three of those other four instances were. You know, in the midst of ongoing, uh, either at the beginning of or in the midst of ongoing bear markets, and this is a, this is kind of a standout. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, certainly uh, is standing out for all of us. Norm Conley, thank you so much for your time. As always, CEO and CIO of Jack Capital Management, joining us on the phone from St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.